0: Before I get into the, uh, into the message today, I was, two things struck me. One was just how fortunate we are to have Taps and Michael as worship leaders. And I thought about Taps. You know, Taps represents us all. If you don't know, if you're new here, he was an orphan in Africa. So he was what we all were. We were all orphaned from God by sin. And he is what we all are, adopted into God's family. And he also is what we all should be, and that is worshipers of God. I'll share something I shared in the first service because it it hit me in a way that made me think it was the prompting of the Holy Spirit. You know, I love when he sings that one song where it says, Not for one minute was I forsaken. You know, I taught for a lot of times over the years Jesus' promise where he said, never will I leave you or forsake you. And then my wife and I lost our only daughter. And when she died, I felt forsaken. And as strongly as I felt that, when I look back through the period of time since then. Now, I know I wasn't. I know I was wrong. And a lot of people probably have had those events in your life, and and maybe some of you are going through those events right now. And I want to tell you and reassure you just what the song said is true. And no matter how you're feeling or what you're going through, he is faithful who promised never to leave us or forsake us. People would ask me, has the death of your daughter shaken your faith? I said, my faith is what got me through it. God's goodness, God's grace, and God's mercy. And so, if that doesn't apply to you today, it probably will sometime in the future. So hold on to that promise, and remember who made that promise. The one who keeps his promises for a thousand generations. Okay, as Rod said in the video, we're going to continue in Ephesus We'll be in chapter 4 today. You know, a lot of people think that the Bible is outdated. I was talking to a friend of mine, a younger man, in a coffee shop in Rudlands. We ta- I was talking to him about the Bible. And I didn't know there was a guy sitting behind me. And uh, he interrupted our conversation. And he looked at the guy I was with and he said, Hey, you don't believe all that crap that he's telling you, do you? Well, I wanted to give him the Bible study with a hard-covered Bible right then. (laughs) But he went on to say how the Bible is outdated and it was written by men thousands of years ago and it's not relevant for today. And I thought, man, you got to be a special kind of stupid, dude. (laughs) The Bible is as relevant today as it was a thousand years ago or 2,000 years ago. And you know why the Bible is true today? You know why the Bible is accurate today? Because people haven't changed over two, three thousand years. We're all the same. We're all marred by sin. Flawed, weak, frail human beings who desperately need God's goodness and God's grace. So, because people haven't changed, the Bible didn't need to change. So, Paul's instruction to Timothy in 1 Timothy is still good, godly advice for all of us here today. This is what he told Timothy. He said, Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scriptures, to preaching and to teaching what we're doing here. Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters, Timothy. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Paul says, listen, Timothy, what I desperately want, I'm your father in the faith. You're my son in the faith. What I desperately want for you is to to progress and to grow and to mature spiritually. Maturity is is the goal. You know, maturity is seen in one of two ways. Actually, that's not even true. It's seen in both of these two ways. Maturity is seen in your life, how you live, and in your doctrine, what you believe. People can try to live well, and by God's grace, they may, but if they have bad doctrine, they haven't grown mature or, uh, or uh, grown or matured spiritually. Paul was writing to people living in a culture very similar to the culture you and I are living in, and he was writing it to people who were people just like you and just like me. People who knew God's commands and God's ways, but weren't always obeying or trusting God's commands or ways. And the, the, the writer of Hebrews calls those people spiritual infants. He says, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. He's talking about people who are infants in their doctrine, in their belief. He said, Don't be a, 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 an infant in your thinking, in what you believe. What you believe matters. You know, our, our culture today says, Hey, it doesn't matter what you believe, only that you believe. Just believe something, and whatever you believe is fine as long as you believe it. That's just bad doctrine. That's heresy and it's not true. Our culture has created a mindset that says life should be easy, life should be quick, and life should be painless. And unfortunately, that mindset in the culture we live in has drifted into the church and into the spiritual issues and spiritual lives of people where people think spiritual growth should be quick, should be easy, and should be painless. And it's none of those things. It's not easy. It's not quick, and it certainly isn't painless. Spiritual growth requires time and effort. It's a process. It's not an event. I wish it was. God, mature me. We would all pray that. The question is, how do people grow and mature spiritually? And the good news is that we don't do it on our own that God is involved Paul tells us in this, book, in this letter to the Ephesians how to grow, how to mature. And this is what he says. Speaking of God, in verse 11 of chapter 4, the book of Ephesians, he says, it was he, God, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching And by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ, and from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The maturity process is a process where God joins hands with men and women, with humanity, It was he who gave some people these gifts so that all of us might be matured and grow up spiritually and become spiritual adults from spiritual infanthood. Paul spent his entire life and his entire ministry trying to grow up Christians into spiritually mature followers of Jesus. It was a process that the great apostle Paul himself had to go through. He said to the Corinthians, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. And the writer of Acts says, yet Saul, who became Paul, grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. We forget that when we see the great apostle Paul and we aspire to be like him, we're seeing the end product. He wasn't always, as a matter of fact, that wasn't even his name to begin with. His name was Saul. And at one point in his life, he wasn't the great apostle, he was the great apostate. He became the great apostle because he went through a process of maturation. And it was his constant plea to the church to do the same. He told the Corinthians, Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regards to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. Now, maturity is a process that is normal in all of life. People grow from infants to adolescence to adulthood. Christians do the same thing, spiritually speaking. Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. That growth challenge is a challenge of maturity, the process. Only Christians have one extra stage in life. It's not just infant, adolescent, and adulthood. It begins in the seeking stage of a spiritual life. People instinctively knowing that there's more in life than what they're experiencing, looking for the meaning of life, looking for happiness in life, not knowing it, but really searching for God in life because God put eternity in the hearts of men, the Bible says. And the seeking stage is an absolute, valuable, necessary indispensable stage of life. It's more important than probably any of us know. God spoke to the prophet Isaiah and said, seek the Lord while he may, found, may be found, call on him while he is near. And then God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. God thinks it's, it's an important stage of life. People who have not yet come to know God or trust God or love God or serve God or obey God, But he doesn't despise that seeking stage because we all had to go through it. You know, over the years, I've seen a lot of seekers come through the doors. A lot of them. And many of them found exactly what they were looking for. I remember when I became a Christian, it was through a process of elimination. I tried everything else. And everything else left me wanting. And so I'd move on to the next thing. But when I found Jesus, I stopped looking because you don't have to look for what you've already found. And I was in in that seeking stage, and I had to go through a lot of turmoil, and a lot of problems to get to it. But a lot of seekers find what they're looking for. But tragically, many seekers end their search not by trusting Jesus, but by saying thanks, but no thanks, maybe some other time. And does that beg the question, why do some seeking people become Christians and others don't? You know what I think a huge key is? I think a major key is sincerity in their heart as they search for God and are having a relationship with Him. The writer of of Hebrews says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance and faith. I've seen over the years that not everyone who claims to be searching for God is sincerely searching. There are many different types of seekers out there. Some are, are legitimate and some aren't. Some of them are paradise seekers. Maybe their lives are falling apart. A bad marriage. A wayward child. Their lives are falling apart. Or they're they're bored and restless in life. So they they they, they decide that they need a dose of God in their life. Only they're not really looking for God. They're looking for a quick fix, a fast cure, or an instant remedy to their problems in life to their pain in life, to their boredom in life, to loneliness in their life. But God sees right through these so-called seekers, and he refuses to reward that kind of motivation. When God doesn't give them exactly what they want, they spin on their heels and they walk away. They shake their fist in God's face for not giving them what they wanted and what they demanded. And so to punish God, they stop believing in him, as if that's going to punish God. They look for a new instant cure somewhere else. It's kind of rude, isn't it? God, I'll serve you if you serve me. God, I'll give to you if you give to me. Not realizing that God did give to them. God gave them life by giving him his own. Then there's the prosperity seekers. And not only is our culture full of them, our churches are full of them too. Some of the largest well-attended churches in the United States are churches where people stand on stages like this and promise you wealth. And it's just not true. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. But those prosperity seekers are out there. And they aren't experiencing pain or great boredom or great loss. But they have aspirations and desires. They've got goals and agendas. There's things that they desperately want you know, businessmen who want raises or promotions, students who want straight A's, singles who want spouses, athletes who want to win the big game, maybe even score the winning touchdown. And that's the equipment manager. He's not even on the field. He wants God to let him score the winning touchdown. The problem is that prosperity seekers refuse to submit their dreams and their desires to God, His way, His will, or His word. They don't want his approval. They don't even want his opinion because they've already decided what they want and need and God is just a convenient way to get it. Sound familiar? God warns them that they can gain the whole world and still lose their soul. God says, I'm not gonna be reduced to a divine butler or a divine errand boy by responding to the whims and wishes of people who really don't care anything about him. But then, I've seen those pure-hearted seekers. Just like the tax collector in Luke 18, where the Pharisee, the religious zealot, was telling God how how lucky God was to have him. And then we read about the tax collector, and it says in Luke 18, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. A humble, sincere person searching for God always find what they've been looking for. Mercy, forgiveness, love, a second chance, a fresh start. And you know why they found what they were looking for? Because without knowing it, they found who they'd been looking for all along. They just didn't know it. So when God finds a sincere seeker on his knees asking for grace and mercy and forgiveness, and you know what he says? He says, It's always the same thing. I've been waiting your whole life to give you exactly what you just asked me for. So one day, the seeker becomes a Christian and he's born again. He admits his sin. He turns away from the old way of life. He trusts all of Jesus' promises. He raises the white flag of surrender over his life and he steps across that line of faith and he becomes a new creation in Christ. Just like the birth of a child is an awesome thing, the same thing is true with a spiritual birth. Jesus said it's such an awesome thing, all of heaven rejoices. Heaven breaks out in a celebration when a seeker becomes a Christian. But you know, as we all know, newborn babies are so vulnerable and they require a lot of care and special uh, care and, and, and comforting and and provision to ensure their health and their survival. they got to have good nutrition, a safe environment, sanitary conditions, constant care. And if a newborn baby gets all of those things, then their future looks bright. Well, the same kind of effort is true in spiritual infants. They're terribly vulnerable to deception, to false doctrines, to being exploited by other people an imbalanced spiritual life. All those things pose threats to spiritual infants, but at least the infant realizes they're inexperienced and they're vulnerable. The birth of the church took place on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. This is the day the church was birthed. Nobody really knew what was going on and nobody planned it. It was a divine move of God, but Israel would gather on that day of Pentecost from every direction, and, and Jerusalem would swell to three and four million people. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell and the church was, was given birth. And in Acts chapter 2, on this event, we find 3,000 spiritual infants in one day. They became the generation that God built the church on that you and I stand on today. They became the foundation of Christianity And they devoted themselves to some few things, just like you got to devote with most spiritual infants. They devoted themselves to prayer, to the study of God's word, and to fellowship together with other believers. And the results were remarkable. Even though they were people every every bit as flawed and frail and weak as you and I, prone to stumbling and sinning and temptation and doubt and fear, there was a tremendous sense of unity and love There was answered prayer and even miracles. People got saved and even among their enemies, the church was known for its love and its integrity and changed lives. You know, spiritual infants today need to do the same things the people that day did. Devote yourself to God's word. First Peter says, Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. You can't grow spiritually without God's word. Plan your schedule and plan your life around the Bible. If it's being taught, be there. Something supernatural happens when the church gathers to hear from God's Word. And that's that the Holy Spirit speaks and He custom designs His message to each one of us to meet us right where we're at, to hear exactly what He wants us to hear, to meet the need that's, that's uniquely in our life. Devote yourself to God's word. Devote yourself to prayer. Devote yourself to fellowship with other believers. And devote yourself to service. And your your future will look bright too. If you do, soon you're not going to be a spiritual infant anymore. In time you're going to grow into spiritual adolescence. In a lot of ways, adolescence is more dangerous than being an infant. Because adolescence is the only season in a person's life where they honestly believe they know everything. You're laughing because you thought you knew everything just like I did. I used to be so much smarter than I am now. I knew everything. You know, Mark Twain was not a fan of infants or adolescents. He actually wrote, he said, you know, when, when children are born, we should put them in a pickle barrel, nail the lid shut and feed them through the hole in the side. And when they become teenagers, plug the hole. That was his philosophy. I shared that years ago, and somebody wrote me a nasty letter. I didn't say it. I'm just quoting Mark Twain, you know? People younger and older than adolescents know full well that other people know more than they do. People who are older, wiser, more experienced. But it just never seems to happen when we're in our teen years, our adolescent years. We think everybody over 30 suffers from intellectual atrophy. And it's a disease you never recover from. And at age 50, you become brain dead. That's what I thought when I was a teenager. I never imagined getting to 30, (laughs) let alone 50. And in four or five years, I'll, I'll probably be that old. Adolescents don't realize that when you cut yourself off from the wisdom and experience and the perspectives of older, wiser, more experienced people, when you separate yourselves from them, you automatically enroll in the school of hard knocks. And only brutal lessons are learned in that school. Listen, a smart person learns from their own mistakes, but a wise person learns from the mistakes of others. That's why God has us all in a family. So we don't all have to make the same mistakes. We can learn from each other's. But when I was a teenager, I thought, man, I'm the exception to the rule. I know what I'm doing. Other people may need all that other's care and stuff. I don't. And so, like most adolescents, I, like most of us, became arrogant, opinionated, imbalanced, rebellious, self-absorbed, self-willed. We've all been there. Because an adolescent will cut himself off from others, he's unprotected from his own foolishness and his own arrogance. The Bible says, if you judge yourself by yourself, you become fools and deceived. We need people around us who will speak into our lives saying, man, what are you thinking? What are you doing? That's not God's will. That's not what the Bible says. You know, the same thing is true for spiritual adolescents. It's too easy to become self-confident. They aren't infants anymore. They're just old enough and experienced enough to realize they aren't totally dependent on other people, but they aren't really seasoned enough to be called seasoned spiritual adults. It's an awkward age spiritually, just like it is physically. And so like many adolescents, the spiritual adolescent is so sure of himself that he stops relying upon those older believers They separate from the local church, and in doing that, they separate themselves from the collective wisdom and advice that God wants to speak to them through that church. And so, spiritual adolescents sometimes stop being teachable, stop being humble, stop being accountable. And then, when God's will and their will collide, God's will loses. Spiritual adolescents become uh, editors of the Bible. They underline verses about joy and power and blessing and victory, but they ignore the verses that call for holiness, honesty, humility, loving, difficult-to-love people, repentance, self-denial, resisting temptation. And oftentimes, spiritual adolescents embrace God's promises but ignore God's demand, and they treat the Bible like it's a restaurant menu, picking and choosing what they want and what they don't want. And then, on top of everything else, they feel no remorse about their unbelievable arrogance. None of us did at that stage of our spiritual life. But thankfully, thankfully, things don't have to stay that way. Just like adolescents leads into and grows into adulthood. The same thing is true spiritually. Spiritual adolescents can grow into spiritual adults. If you think about it, every spiritual adult at one time was a spiritual seeker, a spiritual infant, a spiritual adolescent. The people that you esteem the most at one time were at all these different stages. Like I said before, we, we lose sight of the fact that the Apostle Paul is a finished product, but at one point he was a seeker, And he transitioned into a spiritual infant and a spiritual adolescent and then grew into the great apostle Paul. Over time, every one of them grew and they refused to settle for staying in spiritual adolescence. They refused to stop maturing spiritually. Like the the prophet Samuel, it says, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. John the Baptist was the greatest man the world's ever seen other than Jesus, according to Jesus. And speaking of John the Baptist, it says, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. Even the apostle Paul, it says, yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus. There's a process that every great Christian has had to go through. The same is possible for every spiritual infant and every spiritual adolescent today, you can grow and mature and become a spiritual adult. So that leads us to the next question is, and pretty much the last question, because I'm not going to have you here till the Super Bowl. How do you define a spiritual adult? What does a spiritual adult look like? Well, I think for my definition today, a spiritual adult is a Christian man or woman With a transformed mind, an impassioned heart, and calloused hands. That's a spiritual adult. A transformed mind. A mind that has been transformed not by the wisdom of this world, but by the wisdom of the world to come. A mind that's been transformed by God's word. The writer of Romans says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul talks about a pattern of thinking in this world. It's a mindset that the vast majority of our culture has. The men and women of today. We're all familiar with the slogans that champion their opinions and their mindsets. We all know the slogans that describe the pattern of thinking of this world. These are their their slogans. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. You only go around once in life. The one with the most toys wins. You got to look out for number one. Nice guys finish last. We've heard them all. Those slogans describe the prevailing mindset of untold countless millions of people today. And they illustrate and encourage people's philosophies, goals, dreams, and their lifestyle. They build their lifestyle around these slogans. But the Bible says unless your mind is transformed, you'll never grow into spiritual maturity. You'll never grow into spiritual adulthood. And I want to tell you, a transformed mind does not happen overnight. It happens over time. Time is one of the ingredients God uses for maturity. When your mind is transformed, you'll find yourself quoting new new slogans. Slogans like, Not my will, but yours be done. Not what will it profit to gain the whole world and lose my soul. What can I offer God for all of his goodness and kindness that he's given toward me? Here am I, Lord, send me. When those become slogans that orchestrate your life, If you're not in spiritual adulthood, you're close. A transformed mind stops trusting in human wisdom and starts trusting in heavenly wisdom. James calls it the the heavenly, godly wisdom from above. He said, set your mind on things above, not on things below. And a spiritual adult doesn't just know or profess God's wisdom. He lives by it. God's wisdom directs his life informs his decisions, and determines his actions. A mature spiritual adult with a transformed mind knows the difference between right and wrong because they know the Bible. Again, Hebrews said, solid food is for the mature who by use use what? The Bible and the wisdom contained in it. Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. There's a reason several thousand years ago Solomon said don't call good evil or evil good because that's exactly what our culture is doing today. They're looking at things that are evil and they're applauding it and calling it good. They're looking at things that are good and saying that's evil. Solid, mature believers become doers of the word and not just hearers alone. So spiritual adults have transformed minds. They also have impassioned hearts. Apathy is a sign of atrophy. Your faith is getting weaker if there's never any passion. Now, it's not, it's not something that you wake up every morning and you're ready to charge hell with a squirt gun. Sometimes you just don't feel like it. Sometimes you don't feel like going to church or reading the Bible or praying or do. But if that's the case all the time, then you are having spiritual atrophy taking place. One sign of spiritual adulthood are beliefs and doctrines and convictions that at times result in passion. Passion for God, His will, His word, His worship. Passion for people, lost people, hurting people, lonely people, neglected people, and passion for the church. Spiritual adults don't just attend church. Spiritual adults love their church. They become devoted to their church. They are committed to their church. They order their lives around the church. You don't hear that very often, and I know I'm supposed to say that because I'm a pastor, but I really believe it. Church is where the first two passions are found. If you have a passion for God and a passion for people, guess what churches, when they gather, what what happens then? People show up and then God shows up. You find the first two passions at church. So spiritual adults pray for their church. They serve in their church. They financially support their church. They protect their church and defend it. Let me ask you something. If people could only judge your spiritual maturity by the way you feel about people and church would they say that you were a mature spiritual adult? Because I know a lot of people who think they are and they have no care for God's bride, no care for the church, no real care for the body of Christ. Spiritual adults have a renewed mind, they have an impassioned heart, and they have calloused hands. Jesus said that the spiritually mature Put their hand to the plow and don't look back. That causes spiritual calluses. Not physical calluses, but calluses that you can see with your mind and feel with your heart. Renewed minds and impassioned hearts oftentimes are hard to detect in people. But calloused hands aren't. You can see it a mile away. Spiritual adults have calloused hands from years of building God's kingdom. Building God's kingdom by feeding the hungry, visiting those who are sick, defending the oppressed, reaching out to the lost, all those things that we all applaud. But let me tell you something. People get spiritually calloused hands also by teaching the children or the youth, by working in the nursery, by setting up chairs so that we can all be in this situation, by cleaning the restrooms. Spiritual mature adults also get Callous hands by living a godly life, by being an example to other people, by encouraging people who are ready to give up, or confronting those who are in a compromise or in sin, by restoring those who fall. It's all kingdom work, and it's all hard work, and it all develops spiritual calluses. There's a day coming. It's called the blessed hope. where we all are in the presence of God. No more dreaming about it, hoping for it, reading about it, but actually there. It's called judgment day. And on that day, Jesus won't just be looking at hearts and minds. He'll be looking at hands too. And I got the feeling he thinks that calloused hands fit nicely into nail scarred hands. He says he's got his mark, his hands are marked too. Because he did his part And our hands get calluses when we do ours. So look at your hands today. In your mind, any calluses from doing God's work? Putting your hand to the plow and not looking back? Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. It wasn't an option to him. It wasn't something that he negotiated with himself about. He didn't say, should I or shouldn't I? He said, I must do the work that God the Father has given me. That's why Paul told the Corinthians, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There is no more important endeavor on planet earth for you than the work God has called and gifted you to do whether that's to raise great kids or be a great spouse or, or have a great ministry or have a ministry that nobody knows about. This book in Ephesians, Paul said, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Those works produce spiritual calluses. So the challenge today, the plea today, is determined today That wherever you're at on that scale, from seeker to infant to adolescent to adulthood, wherever you're at, determine today that you will continue to grow and mature. And that as a Christian, even if you're a spiritual adult, there's still plenty of room to grow. But determine today that you are going to be a spiritual adult and determine today that you are going to love Jesus more. You're going to obey Jesus more. You're going to worship Jesus more and you're going to serve Jesus more. And you do that and you'll wake up and find yourself in spiritual adulthood. So let's pray for that now. Heavenly Father, the people in this room probably represent every one of those stages of life. And even the ones that don't, we've all been through one or more of those stages. Some of us find ourselves in those stages today. And God, I pray that, that somehow by the, the goodness and grace and by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, you would give us all the determination that as of today, we will be strategic. We will be diligent. We will be determined that we are going to grow spiritually and become more like Jesus. God, I pray that you would incite us and remind us this week of the different stages of spiritual life and help us get from the stage we're at to the stage you want us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.